Father, you're a, God, a good God who loves us. And Lord, we don't, we don't deserve it. But Lord, we're so thankful that you do. Uh, Lord, as, as we read in your word, we know that we are saved by grace, not by works. And so, Lord, we, um, we thank you for that uh, truth of your salvation, that message of salvation, that good news that is so, uh, so, so precious. And it, it is the greatest treasure that we have. So, Lord, we, um, uh, we thank you for your word. Help us to listen well. Help us to uh, put into practice the words that we hear. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I reckon Australia has to have... If you ask any, most people from overseas, maybe we should put our Cape and Ray guys on the spot, but I won't do that to you guys, it's okay. But Australia's politics would have a reputation right now. Am I right? I think I'm right. The revolving door of the PM's office. That's our reputation. I didn't do the count, maybe you can tell me. How many PMs have we had in the last five years or so? Probably quite a few. Too many, that's the answer, isn't it? Quite a lot. Um, now, next year, we are due for a federal election. I think in, before, before May, I believe. Tell me if I'm wrong, it's all right. And I believe there's a state, state election due as well. So there you go, in March. So it's, next year is election year. We're going to go to the polls at least twice. Um, there'll be a lot of talk about leadership. There'll be phrases. We'll get used to those political phrases. You know those fun phrases? We'll put people first. Growth, a lot about growth. Strength, um, sound management, solid, dependable. These are sayings that, are, that political parties have used in election campaigns over the years. Renewable, exciting times. That was one from Malcolm Turnbull. Poor old Malcolm's gone now. Um, he didn't last too long either. Uh, leadership working for you, all those sort of things. And across the country, when pollies slip into campaigning mode, well, MPs will be fiercely ambitious, won't they? Uh, they'll want the job. And there'll be two, in particular, striving for the top job. At this stage, I believe it's going to be Scott Morrison. I'm not sure, though. And um, uh, Bill Short. They'll be the two striving for the job. But don't, don't count on that. You never know. It might change again. Um, this is what they've worked for, these, these two in particular. They've worked hard. That that's their desire. That's what they've aspired to. Uh, leadership, being the Prime Minister. Now, let, let me ask you a question. What are you ambitious for? Uh, what are you ambitious for? What do you aspire to? Uh, perhaps it's um, success. Maybe it's uh, wealth, uh, a future for your children, sound investments maybe, comfort, maybe just your beloved sporting team uh, winning the comp. But ambition is not always looked upon as an attractive quality. Uh, many people are are not ambitious at all. And that sort of talk comes across as a little self-obsessed in their mind, and a little bit arrogant as well, being ambitious. You think you're better than us, you know, thinking like that. It's not really, it's not an apathy. It's just they're not, just, just not wired that way. They're not, they don't have that ambition, a sense of ambition. Now, as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, who are serious about God's word in the Bible... We tend to hose down or sort of water down any talk of ambition because ambition is seen to be sometimes just worldly. It's a little too self-focused. It's too reliant on me rather than on God. That's what the argument goes. So can we be ambitious? And is there such a thing as godly ambition? 
What should we be striving for as followers of Jesus? Ambitious for? I wonder if you've thought that way uh, before. Well, friends, today we're going to continue our series in Paul's letter to Titus. We'll focus on leadership. That's the next passage we're looking at, uh, verses 5 through to 16. Leadership that works. And we're going to call it, we'll call it effective leadership. For effective Christianity, which we looked at last week, verses 1 to 4, faith and knowledge leading to godliness, needs effective leadership. Effective Christianity needs effective leadership. So Paul writes to Titus, uh, to these churches, because he wants them to avoid any charge of being ineffective. I think it's got to be one of the most uh, saddest things to watch. If you're, a, if you're a Christian person, people who know of Jesus are involved with the church now and then, but the gospel itself doesn't seem to make a difference. Uh, it's not leading to godliness. It's ineffective Christianity. It's very sad. So Paul writes in verse 5, he writes that the key to effective Christianity is effective leadership. So chapter 1, verse 5 says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The Apostle's direction is to appoint elders or overseers. The title is used interchangeably. uh, Or shepherds. Peter uses the term shepherds when he talks about elders. Appoint elders, overseers, shepherds in every town, uh, every church, to regulate and consolidate the life of the church. But not just any type of leader will do. Have a look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 Uh, Verse 2, I'm sorry, says, or above reproach. Now, if you've got, we've all got a number of fingers. Um, So you could do this today. You could stick your finger in 1 Timothy 3 and, actually, I'm going the wrong way. It's back, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. If you want to do that, that would be good. Flick back and forth, all right? If not, just listen carefully. It'll be okay. So you can do that if you like. As well as taking notes and holding a Bible, you'd be a very impressive person if you can do all that at once. Okay, so a leader, an elder, going going to Titus, or 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, which is this, 1 Timothy 3 is this parallel passage. A leader is to be, an elder is to be blameless or above reproach. They're to be a role model. Now there was a time in politics, I'm sorry about all this political stuff, uh, but anyway, there was a time in politics when, we, when, when, leaders, uh, when our leaders had to be just that. They had to be role models. Otherwise, they'd be ruled out. Perhaps these days things are a little bit different. I'm not quite sure uh, in our country. I think we do want to have leaders who are role models. Uh, morality is important. And, um, but I, I, I will use uh, this is a true statement. It's not necessarily a political statement. But in American politics, uh, many Trump supporters, for example just don't care. They just don't care about his well-documented immorality um, and character. Everyone knows it. He knows it. He admits to it. But they just don't care. It's quite staggering, really. But in God's church, effective leadership will mean leaders of a godly character. They set the tone. They are examples to follow who are blameless, uh, who are above reproach. So, in fact, um, who our role models are We talk about this a lot with our youth ministry too, but it's the same with us. Who our role models are 
Well, they, they, they shape and direct and influence us. They tell us a great deal about who we are, I think. You know, they, they, what we think is, is important, the person we look up to and admire and, and follow and who direct us, well, that, that tells us a great, tells a great deal, deal about us. So Paul's message to Titus as he appoints elders and leaders in churches is that godly role models are fundamental for effective Christian leadership. So an elder is such a person whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. That's what blameless means. They have a blameless reputation or, as one commentator said, they have an irreproachable, observable conduct. Good phrase, isn't it? An irreproachable, observable conduct. Think about that for a minute. So their appointment as elder should not therefore be a surprise to anyone. Someone's appointment as, as a Bible study leader, or a community group leader, I should say, should not be a surprise to anyone. Ah, oh, that makes sense. Uh, and their blameless reputation practically means too that the congregation itself would have had to have a say in their appointment uh, in terms of eldership in, uh, in the, the church at Crete. So there must be, as 1 Peter 5 says, an example to the flock and are absolutely necessary for the spiritual health of God's church. So elders, elders must be then, if we continue on in verse 6, a blameless or above reproach in family life. An elder must be a one-woman man, the husband of but one wife, as the older NIV says. Uh, it's a funny sort of term, isn't it? Uh, but one wife just means one wife. It means that they, Paul excludes those who are not only guilty of polygamy, which is something that happened in those days, uh, and, and may well be the future of our world too, I think, by the way. That's another conversation. Bring that up over morning tea. Um, <laughs> had a discussion last night about it with some friends. Um, may well be the future. That, that's the future of the world we live in. Who knows? Uh, but also it excludes people who are, maritary, who are uh, of marital unfaithfulness to leadership in God's church. So those called to teach and exercise discipline in the church must themselves have an unblemished reputation in the area of sex and discipline. But what about the elders' children? My children go to church at night, so I can speak freely. Um, <laughs> I've got to do this sermon tonight too. That's kind of interesting. Oh, well. Uh, yeah. What about the elders' children? Well, let's have a look at verse 6. They must not be open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, and they must believe. Now, uh, quite a few commentators translate this as they must be a man whose, whose children are trustworthy, or you could translate it, are, are faithful. And they're genuine looking, did a bit of my own work this week on, on, on this, uh, as you can expect, and um, trustworthy or faithful. Uh, in other words, trustworthy or faithful to the elder, that's the father, as opposed to being wild and disobedient. So they're faithful, they're not wild and disobedient. You see, that, that's, that's, I think, what's going on in the passage, and it's certainly much more in line with 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. Lots more to say there. I'm happy to ask, answer questions later on. But Paul's logic is fairly clear. As he, as he, and he explains this in 1 Timothy 3, he says that if they cannot uh, control and lead their families well, where they have greater influence and time, then they cannot possibly lead the church well where their influence and time is less. That, that's the logic of what's going on. The elder in God's church must be a leader at home. This spiritual discipline is a prerequisite or a minimum qualification for the, for the task. 
So we need to ask, well, where do we find effective Christian leaders for God's church? Where do we find them? Where should we go looking for them? Uh, community group leaders, uh, service leaders, obviously pastors and so forth. Where do we find them? Well, we look in their homes. That's where we find them. That's where we find them. Now, is this an easy word for those who desire this noble task, as 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, of eldership in God's church? Is that an easy word? Of course not. <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, if you ask any pastor, minister, it would be this passage and the parallel 1 and 1 Timothy, above others, which cause probably them the most doubt as they think about their suitability to serve, to be totally honest. Um, so what, what do you do then? As, and what, do I, what, what should we do as a church? Well, I know many, many of you do this already. You pray for me, your pastor, your minister. Pray for the family. Uh, you pray for our leaders and their families, our small group leaders and Bible study leaders and community group leaders and so forth. That's the same thing. Uh, pray for us and then be patient. That's what we ought to be doing. We be patient. Um, okay. Lots more to say there. I'm happy to answer any questions you like. That's fine. Second, effective leadership means elders must be blameless in character and conduct. Look at verse 7 and 8. Uh, we'll read it in a moment. But since the elder is entrusted with the, with the work of teaching the word of God and refuting error, we'll get to that in verse 9, uh, being a steward of God's word, they therefore must not be hypocrites in character and conduct. You can't teach one thing and then say one thing and do another. That's the idea. So verse 7, they're not to be overbearing or quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. You might think, violent? What sort of pastor is going to be violent? It happens. It happens in our world. It happens. I've heard lots of, not so much in, well, in our culture, but in other parts of the world, yes. And not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. I think it seems to me that the common theme here is self-discipline. So just like an elder, cannot, if an elder cannot control his family, he cannot lead, uh, control the church. Don't get caught up in that word control, but you see where I'm going with it. Now where we see if an elder cannot control themselves in self-control, well, they cannot possibly lead, control, serve the church. Do you see that logic? So rather than violence or being overbearing, our example is Jesus in his gentleness Humble, self, humble, humble service are not self-assertion. That's the example. Uh, it's, it's always easier. It's always easier to use the authority of a title or a position, but instead Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He humbled himself, made himself nothing, even to die on a cross. Uh, he humbled himself and served. Third aspect of these elders that we'll get to, verse 9, Elders must be blameless in sound doctrine, teaching. They have a, have a firm grasp of the truth, never letting go of it. Uh, like Daniel, who read in Babylon. Uh, we'll finish it next week, but you probably know the story. Uh, da Daniel remained true to God's word, even, even with the external pressure on his life that was... Uh, coming his way and he was no doubt experiencing. He remained true to the word of God despite the pressures to do otherwise. That's what we ask of our leaders. That's what God asks, insists of our leaders. So verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those 
who oppose it. Why hold firm to this message? Well, look at the verse there. In it is the means and source of encouragement. By his teaching of the word, sound doctrine, the elder, the pastor, can encourage to godliness and refute error. Those two things. Okay. In some ways, then there's a clear break here in the passage as well. Uh, we'll get to the second part of the passage in a moment. But let's go back to last week. <laughs> let's go back to verses 1 to 3. Uh, let's read that again. And I want you to notice links, and I want you to notice uh, one thing leading to another as we read. Okay? So, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, promise before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. Notice the logic. You see it? Notice there's links in a chain, if you like. Did you notice that one thing leads to another? So, for example, faith and knowledge. What does faith and knowledge lead to? It leads to godliness. And then like any chain, or if a link is broken, well, it's not strong, is it? It won't be strong. It'll be ineffective, possibly like a passing fad, touching on last week as well. Now, here's the elder's job. Here's the pastor's job. Is then to make sure the links in the chain happen. That's the pastor's role. To make sure the links in the chain happen. And they do that by being above reproach, blameless, and by holding firmly to the trustworthy message, the gospel. That's a little summary of what we've done so far. Okay, so in verses 10 to 16, well, that, that, Paul gives further reason why elders must hold firm to the trustworthy message. For there will be rebellious people, talkers and deceivers. There will be false teachers. There will be fakes. Anything good can be counterfeit. Anything good can be counterfeit. Uh, oh, I forgot that slide. There you go. You'll be right. So I, I, I bought a genuine fake watch once, and that's how the guy sold it to me. It was a genuine fake. Quite funny, really. Um, it's not this one. It didn't last. It, it lasted about three weeks or four weeks. Um, genuine fake, he assured me. I said, oh, really, thank you. It didn't cost much money at all. But anything valuable can be faked. The better, the more valuable the genuine article, the more serious the counterfeit. And the more, and the more important it is to be able to distinguish the genuine from the fake. Are you follow? So if I go to the checkout up to the friendly grocer up there and, and I get my change and I get a 20 cent coin in the change, but I, I work out very quickly it's, it's from New Zealand. And I mistake it for a real 20 cent coin. Um, now, I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over that. It's going to be okay. I can cope with 20 cents losing that. Um, that's all right. But if I buy a diamond ring and it turns out to be glass or crystal, or if you give someone a diamond ring and it turns out to be glass or crystal, it turns out to be a fake, well, you're in serious trouble, aren't you? There's a few people nodding. Think, have you done it before, have you? I'm sorry if you have. See, all good things can be counterfeited. 
The better the genuine thing is, the more damage the counterfeit can do. Life lesson 101. Okay, there you go. Put that in your diary. Uh, It's a good principle. The best and most valuable thing in this world, what is it? The most precious thing that any human being can find, what is it? Well, it's God's gift of salvation, isn't it? It's the greatest treasure. It's God's gift of salvation. That is the most valuable and best thing in this world. And when you find it, well, you realise that actually you didn't find it. God found you. That's what you realise. But if God's gift of salvation is the most valuable thing there is, what's the most dangerous thing there is then? Well, it's counterfeits of God's salvation. Fakes. That's the most dangerous thing there is. Nothing in this world can do more damage than fake Christianity because nothing in this world can do more good than genuine, effective Christianity. So the reason Titus is to appoint elders in every town and to ensure that they meet the standards Paul lays down is that there are fakes. There are false teachers who are leading people astray and they are dangerous. What do you think is the greatest threat to Christianity? The greatest threat to Christianity? I can tell you, it's not long sermons. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. It's not long sermons. That's not the greatest threat. It's not boring services and it's not even disunity amongst Christians. It's not that either. It's false teachers. People who teach counterfeit Christianity. And in Crete, like in our world, there are many. Paul tells Titus and the churches that they need to recognise them. And more than that, they need to silence them. So let's notice a few things about these false teachers. I think I've got uh, that slide there. I've got my slides mixed up. Okay, that's all right. It's blank. That's good. Um, You can follow this on your outline anyway. You can fill in some of the gaps there. Let's notice a few things. First, their identity in verse 10. Scribble a few notes down if you want to. They are rebellious. Uh, They deceive. They talk well. They're always good talkers. Always. Watch out for them. They're slick. They're arrogant. But their talk is fruitless talk. It doesn't convert to godliness at all. Now, there's this circumcision group that are mentioned uh, in verse 10. That, that pro- most likely, a bit like the, the, the issue in Galatians, uh, most likely they were teaching that to be saved, you had to be circumcised. So, yes, believe in Jesus plus this uh, and other sort of Jewish myths that Jesus speaks of. It's a gospel plus false teaching. Now, we might come across it in similar lies today. Uh, Jesus, yes, great, Jesus, but you've got to have this experience as well. You've got to do this. Or Jesus plus, oh, you've really got to come to our church. Then you're a real Christian. Or Jesus plus, well, you've got to give this amount. Uh, Jesus plus, it's a false teaching. Christ alone, faith alone, the cross alone. That's what we ought to be uh, teaching. There's a subtle variation on, on that false teaching, that gospel plus, isn't there? Uh, trust in Jesus and he'll bless you with health and wealth. A subtle variation. Just as dangerous. That's a bit to do with their identity. Uh, what about verse 11? Verse 11, they are influential. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought, they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. You notice that in the, the first, four, first four words of verse 11, apathy will not do. 
Action needs to be taken to stop such people. Now, whether it's by argument, I don't mean... No, uh, intellectual, proper argument where you're thinking through things and not losing your cool. Um, rebuke, uh, verse 12, or, or, um, or, or discipline. But sitting on our hands, saying nothing, will not do. For nothing in this world can do more damage than fake Christianity. And to notice, as we look at their, how their influence and their identity and what they're like, and notice their motivation, it's all for greed. You see that? Uh, for the sake of dishonest gain. What about their character? It's the third part, the third little point in your outline there. Uh, recognising the threat means recognising the character of the enemy. So verse, verse 12 to 14, uh, one, of the, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Uh, we think that uh, this is a reference to a 6th century um, philosopher, uh, a Cretan, uh, Epimenides, I think his name is, um, Anyway, that's what most people say. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Verse 13, this saying is true. He agrees with Epimenides. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith. See, Paul hasn't given up on them, has he? The purpose of the rebuke is so that they'll come back in line with sound doctrine, sound teaching. They'll be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Well, finally then, they reject the truth. In other, in other words, truth matters. Truth matters. The truth of God's word matters. It's why you ought to have your Bibles open in front of you as I speak. Because what we read here matters. You've got to check that I'm doing that properly. Truth matters. Notice the mere human commands, the end of verse, uh, or middle of verse 14, Mere human commands are just that. They're just human commands. They're not the truth of God's word. Friends, I'll give you an example. Unity, Christian unity, that, you know, it's, it's important, but not through playing fast and loose with the word of God. Unity by picking and choosing what suits and is more comfortable, that's, that's not what we ought to desire as Christians. Unity through the truth of God's word is what we ought to desire. So let's, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. I just wonder here if Paul is speaking of the purity of God's word. I'm not actually convinced by that, but I think maybe it is. Maybe it is that here Paul's speaking of the purity of God's word that these false teachers have no interest in following. So to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Let's pick up a couple things here. First, they, these, these dangerous people who infiltrate the church, uh, they, are, they claim to know God. You see that? Jesus calls them, or false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. And in uh, 2 Timothy, Paul calls such people having a form of godliness but denying its power, making them even more dangerous. Paul says, by their actions, that'll give them away. Looks can be deceiving. We ought to remember from last week, what is effective Christianity? Well, faith and knowledge leading to godliness. So their actions will give them away. 
Well, this is not a bad, not a bad spot to stop. There's probably lots more we can say. Um, but as we do, let's think about our opening question again. Come back with me where we started in regards to effective Christianity, effective leadership and ambition. Uh, we use the term godly ambition. In the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes that an elder desires a noble task. But are not the characteristics of elders we've just listed characteristics of godliness, aren't they? Therefore, should they not then be characteristics of all followers of Jesus? Let's put it slightly differently. You see, we really should treat leaders, elders, uh, sorry, we really should not treat leaders, elders, as a breed apart, a different breed. We shouldn't do that. As though we have double standards in the church. Well, there's one for the rest of us and there's one for leaders. There's one for our pew warmers, <laughs> you know, it's the average, average church guy. One for them, one for leaders. No, no, no. Friends, if God requires particular standards for Christian leaders, it's because those are the standards God requires for Christian people. And it seems to me that's, what Paul, that's why Paul writes and he addresses his letter to all the churches, not just to Titus. We should say here, then, that here in Titus 1 is not only effective leadership, but it's godly ambition. Here's what we must desire Here's what we must be ambitious for. In fact, here's what Christian maturity looks like, isn't it? So what are you ambitious for? Well, let's pray that we can be ambitious for what we've read this morning. How about I pray and then you can ask any question, make a comment, whatever you like. Father, we thank you for uh, your word today. Uh, some challenging things for all of us. Lord, we pray that we would listen carefully and we would put into practice these things that we've, we've heard. We continue to pray for all of our leaders. We pray that they would indeed be blameless in character and conduct, in their teaching, and we thank you for their service and ministry to us. Lord, we, um, we thank you for our church, uh, and we thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.